You don't need me to tell you that there is a cost of living crisis in the UK and it's only set to get worse this winter. Trade unions are already trying to fight back and they've got no choice really, with employers imposing real terms pay cuts on their staff. The CWU, the Communications Workers Union, is no different. They represent staff in the Royal Mail, BT, who are suffering precisely those problems. I spoke to Dave Ward, General Secretary of the CWU, to see his thoughts about how working people can fight back. Hello, Dave. Welcome to Downstream. Hi, Aaron. Good to be here. You are the General Secretary of the Communication Workers Union. Um, you represent raw mail workers, BT workers, more besides. We'll talk about that in a moment. How did you get your job? Because, you know, the public now is increasingly familiar with Mick Lynch. And so I think your personal story is probably of interest. Yeah, I, I joined uh, the GPO, as it was then, back in 1976 as a telegram boy. Um, and then I went on to be a postal worker at Tootin Delivery Office. And uh, I spent 13 years um, as a local rep before I did any other job in the union. I loved it. Uh, I still got all the same mates that I had then. Uh, and I have to say, they're some of the cleverest people that I've ever come across, postal workers. One of the, the things I've learned, no matter what CEO you meet, what um, uh, political leader you meet, uh, ordinary working class people are really smart and they have some great ideas. Um, and it's just about bringing the, the confidence of the collective strength of workers together. Um, so yeah, I went through all of that. I did uh, various jobs in the union, uh, got elected. Every, every position you stand for is an election. Um, I've been very fortunate uh, in that I've won every election I've ever stood for. And that culminated in becoming the general secretary of the CWU about seven years ago. I've pretty much done all the various positions leading up to that. Uh, you know, the main negotiating positions for London, um, for National Union, uh, and now the General Secretary. What politicised you? Are you are you sort of like, that? there's that cohort of, if you don't mind me saying, middle-aged General Secretaries now, which, you know, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon for me anyway. You've got yourself, um, you've obviously got um, Matt Rack at the FBU, you've got Mick Lynch, and... What I find fascinating is that the media was insisting you guys were dinosaurs as recently as a couple of years ago. And actually, as we'll talk about, you're completely in line, it seems, with the national zeitgeist on a bunch of issues. So are, are you part of that same cohort as those guys? Or did you get politicised in a distinctly different way? What's your relationship sort of to the Labour Party over the last 20 years? Because Mick Lynch says, you know, I'm not a Labour Party member. Are you on a sort of similar trajectory as him or is it a bit different? Uh, probably similar. Uh, I was talking to Mick the other day. We actually went uh, to schools about half a mile apart. Um, he went to, I think it was the oratory. I went to a uh, Catholic school around the corner from there uh, where, where the not-so-clever people went. And, um, yeah, I mean, my political journey, I I'm not the most well-read person. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I've learned, has literally been through uh, my own experiences, the experiences of other workers. And I've always had this thing inside me that if I see an injustice, um, wherever it is, whether it's in work or outside work, I can't sit by. Uh, I, I think that's just the reality of it. And I've always been like that. Um, maybe many, many years back, uh, probably would be a bit quick sometimes to show that. Uh, and maybe not always um, do it in the right way. Uh, but I, I just feel that 
you know, the trade union movement is such a, a democratic organisation. And my view has always been that, you know, the trade union movement needs to look at the issues in the widest possible context. So, yes, we should support our members at work. Uh, we should do everything possible to improve their pay terms and conditions. But if you're not looking increasingly at the wider issues that affect, are affecting your ability to negotiate with companies and trying to put them right, uh, you know, in terms of how the economy is rigged against working people, in terms of the way that um, the boardrooms of these companies are just acting, you know, they're out of control. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't start looking at that, along with other trade unions and other political groups who are interested in, you know, these issues. Uh, so for me, the, the, the fundamental thing that I've sort of found over the years is that, and it's been decades and decades in the making, uh, is that there's a structural imbalance of power and wealth. And I think it's right through the world of work. It's right through uh, how the economy operates. And it's certainly responsible for pretty much all of the inequalities that we see in society. Quickly, before we talk about the meat of, of, of why you're here, really, which is the number of disputes that your union's involved in at the moment, hugely important disputes. You said you went to a Catholic school. Yeah. Are you still practicing or you observe? No, no. Again, I find that quite interesting, the idea that, you know, Britain's quite a secular country, but at the heart still of the labour movement are these values of solidarity, charity, kindness, which clearly go back a long way. And people talk about the Labour Party and Methodism, but, you know, Mick Lynch has talked about the Catholic yeah. sort of social fabric he, he grew up in. Did that influence you at all in terms of your politics? Uh, maybe a little bit in terms of working people uh, coming together, realising that, you know, there were struggles that we were all facing, but certainly not in terms of how I deal with situations now. In fact, probably the opposite, um, because when I look back at it, you know, I mean, I went to a school in Battersea where, um, you know, the, the teachers were, were nuns. And, you know, some of the things that when I think back on it now, funny enough, I was only talking to a couple of mates the other day about it. And, you know, when you all lined up in the pews in, in the morning, you know, you're probably about eight or nine years old and you're talking to your, your mates alongside you and you're trying to work out what it is you've done that's wrong uh, when you face the priest. Mm. Um, you know, so there was a fear there, which I don't agree with. Uh, and, a, and a feeling for me that, you know, the answer was always in, in religion. And, you know, I don't believe the answer is, is always in religion. And I, I probably learned that at quite a young age. Interesting. It's just something I've observed increasingly with people who sort of have this real desire to change society and a real instinctive, passionate feeling inside them about inequality and social injustice. I, as I get older, I find that sort of, that does come from somewhere. But anyway, we can talk about that another time. Your members in the Royal Mail um, have balloted to strike to go on four days of strike. So we've had one already. Uh, we've got two more in September. So there's two in August, two in September. And it looks like you may do a second wave after that, sort of further four days of action. Eight days of strikes by postal workers. Now, under normal conditions, that would be extraordinary, Dave. Eight days. You've had huge turnouts, people voting for four already, maybe another four. How is that, how is that possible to have such an overwhelming consensus behind what is, under normal conditions, very radical action? Well, well I think it reflects, obviously, our desperate people are at the moment, how seriously the struggles are that, that they and their families are facing, 
millions and millions of other people across the UK in the same situation. Um, but I think it's also because the companies that they work for, uh, you know, it's not just Royal Mail, it's British Telecom, um, the post office, you know, they're all members at the moment are involved in these strikes, all delivered incredible yes votes for strike action, mm. smashed the Tory thresholds. We, we as a union have been doing that for some time. Uh, and it's because we engage with our members. We engage with them all of the time. Uh, we developed a strategy where, you know, we engage on all platforms. Face to face, obviously, is the most effective. We've got great structures within the union. It's not all about the leadership of the union. It's about the, the reps. You know, I mean, I don't think there's any other union as, on a national level, probably, that's got the sort of reps structures that we've got in the workplace. And these reps still have power. Uh, we, despite privatisation, we fought off efforts to sort of diminish union power. And, and our reps are just so good, uh, so loyal, and they engage their own work uh, colleagues uh, and the members of the union in a way that I, I think is fantastic, you know, fair play to them. And it's been going on for a long time, albeit you're right, we haven't had a strike since 2013, I think was the last national strike before this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we believe in engagement. Uh, we d would normally do things where, you know, our comms team are fantastic as well. They've got very good ideas. They'll barge in in the middle of meetings, uh, you know, and say, listen, we, we need to go live. Something's just broke. Mm -hmm. Royal Mail have said this, BT have said this. And the culture that we've developed across the union now is that the leaders need to be accessible on every platform. Uh, to engage with the members. And obviously, we're taking that into uh, some of the wider campaigns that the union is involved in as well. We'll talk about BT in a moment. I don't want you to think I'm neglecting it, but just sticking with Royal Mail for a moment. Management there is saying that the company is losing a million pounds a day, which is why you have this 2% pay imposition. They're offering a bit more than that, but even then, it's only 5.5%, I believe. It's well below inflation. But they're saying they can only do that because you know times are tough. Where's this £1 million a day figure come from? Because actually over the last three years, they've made $1.7 in profit. And it, it's a, I can't find the source for it. It's a very convenient figure um, that's plucked out of the air that sounds good. Uh, I'll tell you where I think it comes from. Um, many years back, uh, around about 2007, uh, Adam Crozier uh, and Alan Layton uh, were the chair and the CEO of Royal Mail. And when they came, I, rem I always remember Alan Layton and Adam Crozier saying, uh, Royal Mail's losing a million pound a day. And I turned to one of my mates and I said, when they leave, I said, they'll be saying that Royal Mail is making uh, a million pound a day. And lo and behold, a few years later, that was the headlines. We're now moving on because uh, we've done our job here and the company's now making a million pound a day. Um, unfortunately, the new CEO, uh, a woman called Moya Green, who came in, uh, the first time I spoke to her, which was about a week after she came in uh, to become the new CEO, she actually came down to our conference that we were holding at the time in Bournemouth. Uh, she said to me, the company's bankrupt. Uh, you can come in and see the books. And therefore, you'll understand why we're skeptical about what the company is saying. What we would acknowledge is that since the pandemic, where you know they made record profits two years on the trot, literally on the backs of our members. Uh, there is no doubt that the volumes of parcel deliveries have gone down. And we've always known that unless the company decides to go on a growth agenda that really 
you know, uses the workforce as their greatest asset and develops new products, new services, then it's inevitable that the volumes will go down. So I think it's probably fair to say, I, I don't know those exact figures, but I'm sure that since the figure um, of £758 million was announced as a, a record profit, that probably it's gone down a bit since then on a daily basis. Now, what that is, is, well, let's do something about that. Let's get around the table. Let's get back to the agreement, which we say they've walked away from, uh, because the agreement we had set out a strategy and a direction for the company called the Pathway to Change. And, you know, that was really well thought through. It was all about trying to grow products and services. And the truth is the company have abandoned that. And the reason they've abandoned it, I think more alarmingly, is that it appears that they're now engaged in secret talks with a private equity investment firm called VESA, V-E-S-A, uh, that are based in Luxembourg, uh, to take over the company. And I think they've been going behind the backs of the, of the union, of their members. I think they've been going behind the backs of the public in terms of what type of services they really want to run in the future. This was a really striking thing for me as I sort of researched this story a bit. So you obviously got Royal Mail Group, and then you've got the sub subsidiary, which is GLS, which is highly profitable. It's a different business. And it's important to say Royal Mail still made very healthy profits. Domestic profit went up, you know, like you said, because of the, the, the COVID crisis. And very important to say, I believe that parcels today, by volume, are still above before the pandemic. Yes, they are. Yeah. So it's not like it's a, it's a, look, we all get parcels every day and we know it's a booming industry logistics. But what I found really striking was the big possibility that they sell off GLS and they essentially run into the ground Royal Mail, you know, posties as, as we know them in this country, this organization that's been around for four or 500 years, depending how you want to measure it. And clearly the public would have none of that. And yet it's not really featuring in the media. So you've got suspicions about that, but how firm are your suspicions about that? Yeah, I think pretty firm. I think you've nailed it in terms of what's really going on behind uh, the backs of the workforce. And I think it's the pressures of competition. It's the pressures uh, that we've seen before and we fought off before when Rico Back was the CEO of the company. Uh, and there's a view amongst some of the people who are running the company, clearly, that the universal service is actually a disadvantage, not an advantage, and that they want to kind of turn Royal Mail into just another parcel courier. And that's against the agreement we made. We said in the agreement that there were three parts of the strategy for the future. The first part was that we would try to capture parcel growth. We would maximize uh, efficiency in the parcel networks to achieve that. Uh, we would develop the services there. Uh, but we also said that we would expand the role of postal workers. Uh, and that's what they've walked away from. Um, because I think postal workers are their greatest asset. They've got a unique bond of trust with customers on the doorstep. And we've always argued strongly that if they leveraged that trust, uh, they could develop a whole new range of products and services. Those services could be tailored in a way that would add social value. So postal workers are out on the street all the time. You know, they hear and they see things. Uh, so we could develop kind of uh, approaches that would help uh, communities and that, you know, and, and deal with some of the social issues that the country faces uh, through uh, enlisting the support of postal workers in that. But also we could tailor 
to local businesses, uh, new products, new services that would be probably uh, really helpful to businesses in certain parts of the UK. Such as? Uh, well, I, I think you could do, um, you know, I mean, this is the plan. This is what we agreed. Yeah. We would go to the postal workers and we would take some of those postal workers in every part of the UK and we would let them go out and meet all of the businesses in the in their area where they know where all these businesses are working from home, all the various different things, and actually have a discussion with them around what type of things would you want Royal Mail to do that would help your business. To centre in the customer rather than the shareholder. Centering on the, on the customer rather than the shareholder. And that was all in the agreement that we made. And the company have just sat back and let that go. Uh, and one of the things, you know, we provide obviously a national service, but Royal Mail is uniquely positioned. It's one advantage over companies like Amazon is the relationship that the postie has with the customer. And our point has been, when are you ever going to realise that that is something that could grow this business? It needs, it's not going to happen overnight. Nobody ever suggested that. Um, there are different products and services that we think postal workers themselves would come up with uh, through that relationship. And surely, what a great way to maintain this particular business, which as you said, you know, is part of the social fabric of the UK. It is interesting because increasingly, and this is the story of 2022, I mean, it's going on for years, but I think it's increasingly sort of just inarguable, is that you've got a trade union leader here talking about how a business can become more productive, more innovative, and then you've got the supposed business execs, and all they care about really is their next payday, and they probably won't be there in two or three years' time. So they're the sort of definition of short-termism, and you're saying something very, very different. Is that is that a fair assessment? Are they inherently short-termists? And do you think that's cutting through a little bit to politicians? Because they always seem to think the sun shines out the backsides of, of business people. But if they're in it for a, you know, a, a cheap buck and they'll be, gone, they'll be gone as soon as the going gets tough, then why would, you, why would you side with them if you were Labour or even the Conservative Party? Let me be absolutely clear. In an industry like Royal Mail, in, in the postal and logistics sector, you know, you've got to innovate. You've got to accept that change is necessary um, and we wouldn't be doing our job if we faced away from change and that's why I think people are also in in the sorting offices really resentful of the management uh, because they're lying about modernization they're not interested in modernization and I think increasingly what you're seeing now in interviews you know from other trade union leaders is the same thing um, all they want to do, is create a leveling down agenda on their cost base and they want to do the safest, quickest thing that rewards the shareholders and themselves at the expense of the long-term future of the company. I've always said the union needs to be the conscience of Royal Mail when it comes to growing the business. We are not dinosaurs. We're never sitting back saying, um, you know, let's just hope it could be as it was 20, 30 years ago and we'd all be good. We know that we've got to change. Our members know we've got to change. But we had an agreement on change and the, the company walked away from it. And it's not the first time that they've done that. You know, CEOs come and go. They all say the same things when they first come. They all want to work with a union. They all want to build trust. They all want to change the culture. Uh, and then lo and behold, these pressures start to impact on their thinking and they take the first opportunity that comes their way to maximise profit. It's as simple as that. Are they weasels, these people? Because they sort of, <laughs> again, the older I get, you realise how many weasels there are in life, people that actually don't take 
their word very seriously and they're actually quite dishonorable people. I mean, that does seem to characterize a lot of corporate bosses in this country. And I presume the, you, the experience to, of Royal Mail isn't any different. Yeah, you, you'd have to draw that conclusion now, I think, is that there's something inbuilt in these people. I mean, one of the things, again, I've noticed is that they're all on a bit of a merry-go-round. You know, they're going to be the CEO of Royal Mail one day. They'll be the CEO of another company the next day. They'll be executive directors or non-executive directors. They've got a formula. And it's a formula that is breaking uh, the back of the UK because it is just simply unfair. You know, the workers make the profit. These guys rip the profits out. It's an extractive system. Uh, which privatisation clearly is. It's not about long-term investment in businesses. Uh, it's about taking things out of the business. And I think they're all pretty much the same. And what happens is then the balance of forces come into play. And then we, because we're a very strong union um, and we're always thinking about the future for our members, we put ideas on the table on how you can grow the business and that throws them. That makes their position light. And then you end up, through the strength of the membership, the strength of our representatives, you end up reaching an agreement. And then we go off on the next path for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden, the same set of pressures come back again. So you can call them weasels. Uh, you can call them whatever. I'm not into the sort of personalities as such. I just think that they're wrong. And, you know, it's back to what you said earlier on. It's not fair. And when things are not fair, then we have to stand up for our members. You, you can't say it and you shouldn't say it because of your job. But just to conclude that point, it's not, I'm not personally attacking them, but it just does seem to me that words and honour don't matter anymore in corporate Britain. And I mean, I'm sure it, I'm, maybe I've got a rose-tinted picture of the past, but it does seem to me that just outright lies and misrepresentation and deception is, is the norm, as, as, as is the case. There's, so a, there's a moral crisis Totally. I think in, in every boardroom in the UK. Uh, you know, we need to change the way companies are, are governed. We need to, even if, you know, you don't get fully to, uh, you know, public ownership, there are things you could do in between times that would put representatives of customers on board, on boards that would give the workers a great say. And it can't be that phony stuff, phony partnership. I've never believed in that. It has to be real change about you know, where, where people, we understand the governance structures that sit under the main board, that do all the sort of operating, decide all of the investment options for the company. These are things that workers should have a greater say in. Then you bargain. So you get two bites of the cherry. You put your ideas forward and then you bargain um, for the delivery of those ideas. You know, you don't let one weaken yeah. the other or vice versa. You have two two opportunities. And, and that's how we see it. You know, we see it the same way in every company that we represent members. The, the crisis, is, you said, in boardrooms is, is bang on. Because I've been thinking more and more about just leadership. Because we see a lack of leadership or honour or truth or commitment to public service in water, rail, same, mail, across the board. And, I, you know, I, I've been obviously keeping abreast of Man United and Eric Ten Hag. It's an interesting story, ups and downs. And what was interesting for me was after they lost 4-0 to Brentford, they weren't running the team. I remember we saw this story. And then he said, right, we're going to do a 20-kilometer jog or a 15-kilometer jog the day after the Brentford match. He ran it with them. And I thought, that's leadership. You say, I'm, you're going to go the extra yard, and you know what? I'm going to come with you. And then by contrast, you have these guys saying, I'm going to earn 50 times the average salary. And by the way... I'm going to stay at my home in Switzerland, like Rico back, while you know you will risk your health with the COVID pandemic. I mean, it's the opposite of leadership. It's the opposite of leadership, and you know, if you go back to what you said, you know, maybe your your thoughts on how companies were run 
a long, long time ago. I mean, let's go back a very long time ago to, to people like Henry Ford. I mean, whatever your views were on people like that, they were innovators. Um, you know, they made cars and people benefited ultimately from cars. These people now, this breed of, of boardroom uh, bullshitters, I suppose is the best way of putting it, um, are, they're not into that. They're not innovators. They don't grow the business. They wreck things. They break things up. And it is a formula. And anybody can pick that formula up. There's no skill to it. Uh, and they apply that formula. That's why you've got to address the balance of forces here. That's why if you really want to stand up for working people uh, as trade unions, then you've got to address the bigger issues that sit behind the immediate negotiations that you're having with any particular company. There was a poll out yesterday. Obviously, this comes out after we're recording it, so it's probably a, you know, a week ago now, by Servation, which said that 63% of the public, takeaway don't knows, 63% of the public think that your strike with the Royal Mail is justified. Um, only 37% against. Did that surprise you? I mean, that's a really massive majority in favour of strikes. No, it didn't surprise me at all because posties have a special bond with customers. You know, I always say to to our members, you know, I think if you look at uh, anyone in the UK, they like to see a postal worker coming down the street. Mm. It's kind of part of the social fabric of the UK. It, it almost gives people a little bit of trust, a little bit of confidence that things aren't running away from them if they see a postal worker in a proper uniform coming down the street. And it's always been that way. And, and the sad part of this debate in Royal Mail is that the company never want to leverage that, that bond. You know, they, they want to break that bond. And you mentioned the guy Rico back. His plan was actually to abandon Royal Mail. They don't want to take it head on because they know the public will be really up in arms then about what their real plans are. Uh, so what they start doing is talking about, basically they, they want to put anything that grows into a new company with a new workforce with inferior terms and conditions. And the services that are on the decline, like perhaps delivering letters, they want to keep that in the, in the main company so that the company withers on the vine. So they don't take you on head on. Although I do think that the current dispute is heading for that issue, um, you know, on a head on clash with the company. Are you surprised that the the conservatives in all of this, because Royal Mail is the is the one thing that Thatcher, you know, wouldn't well, a couple of things, rail as well, but Royal Mail, there was an ideological reason behind it. It's got Royal in the title. You'd think conservatives care about that. It's very old. Its logo includes a crown. Again, if you're a conservative, I I, I sort of I would have thought the average conservative voter in the home counties, very affluent, retired. If you said to them, Raw Mail is going to wither on the vine because they want it to become like, you know, Amazon or any other sort of logistics firm, they said, that's outrageous. That cannot happen. So are you surprised that maybe Tory politicians aren't a bit more responsive to all of this? Well, I think behind the scenes, uh, the Tories uh, are probably in agreement with the company. They are on most of these things. Um, but they don't like it coming out in the open. What was really interesting the other day when from our sources in the strike that took place last Friday, we started posing the question of we believe the company are involved in secret talks uh, about a takeover bid and that this dispute has almost been manufactured by mm. them to get us to that point. Um, it was interesting that we wrote a letter to the chair of the company and the CEO of the company uh, 24 hours earlier, 
And 24 hours after, actually 48 hours before the strike, we wrote the letter posing this question. And 24 hours later, there was a statement that appeared from Royal Mail and the government, uh, the business secretary uh, to the city, saying that, yes, there was some kind of uh, discussion going on. Um, but, you know, they're going through due diligence and there's nothing to worry about. So we prompted them to come out wow. in the open. And I think that needs to come out a bit more. You know, you would think that uh, that Keir Starmer, Labour, would be would be putting those questions in Parliament. We hope they will. We've given them the information um, to question uh, the business secretary, but I think the government are actually sitting behind it and rubbing their hands at the prospect of it. More about Keir Starmer in a moment. Let's talk quickly about BT, because you represent call centre workers, engineers who've also been on strike. There was this incredible story, I think it was in the Northeast, about BT call centre workers. This is a company which made post-tax profits last year of 1.2 billion, of them having to use food banks. And the food banks were in the workplace, and they were called like workplace pantries or something like this. Community pantries. It sounds like something like, I, I think I said at the time, it was something like you'd find in John Lewis or something. Do the executives realise how awful they look? This is, you know, I feel like the guy's Philip Janssen. He is worth, I, I believe, in excess maybe of 50 to 100 million pounds because he was the beneficiary of a, an organisation being floated years ago. He's a very wealthy man and he's now at the top of an organisation where staff have to use food banks. Do, do you think he has any idea about how bad that looks or is, it, is he not on top of it or is he just a sort of ferociously nasty person? I mean, how, how, do, they, how do they justify this themselves? You talk to them often. Well, no, this guy, actually, you can't get to this guy. He's um, he's refused to be involved in negotiations throughout. He refuses to face the media, and to put those numbers in perspective, you know, when they imposed uh, a fifteen hundred pound flat rate increase on our members, not negotiated, imposed, that came on the back of them imposing a pay freeze the year before. Um, he suddenly got a 32% increase in his own earnings, taking it to £3.5 million. Uh, they gave away, chose to give away over £700 million to shareholders. And, you know, they're, they're just people who I don't think they, they care about their own workers because their own workers and the terms and conditions that unions have fought for for many years get in the way of them making more and more money. And but their they, strategy is to burn workers out. I get that. but Loyalty doesn't mean anything to them. I understand. I, to, an, to an extent, I understand that. I, ex, I understand that. It says a business logic here. I have to maximize revenue for shareholders, yada, 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 yada. But you're making 1.2 billion in profit. Like you say, you're on three and a half million and your staff, some of them are having to raise kids, single parents, whatever, having to use food banks. It's evil. It is evil. I mean, I, I don't use that it's language an abuse, lightly. It's an abuse of power yeah. and an abuse of wealth. Um, and totally an abuse of the workforce. So, I mean, okay, so you don't talk to Philip Janssen, but these kinds of people, how, how do they justify it? Well, we want, we want to talk to Philip Janssen. Uh, I did an interview earlier on this morning where I called him out and said, like, you know, if you want to resolve this dispute, you've got to get your hands dirty. No, you can't do this by sitting at the back of it, uh, issuing bland statements, never facing the media. Uh, these, these people are mysterious people. I mean, they move in circles that we would would never probably understand. Uh, but you've got to get them in the room. And the first sort of call 
that we're making here is that, you know, to resolve this dispute, he has to come in the room and take responsibility for his actions. And members of the board, if needs be, need to be in the room. You can't have negotiations, and there aren't any going on with BT, with managers lower down the chain who haven't got a remit. Mick Lynch talks about this very eloquently. Uh, other trade union leaders will be finding the same situation. So, you know, we're up for meeting him. They, by the way, the workforce are, are now called him Food Bank Phil. Um, such is their disgust, I think, at his actions, uh, at the greed and the hypocrisy. And I think you said it in a, in a, in, in a program a couple of weeks back when they were on strike. The message that they are sending to their workers is no matter how successful you've made a contribution to that success of this company, we're going to make you poorer. And that's just completely unacceptable. And it would be unacceptable and it should be unacceptable to every worker in the UK. I find it amazing. I find it amazing. They need to go, don't they? Yeah, no, but it's they, just... They I'm need to be pushed out of companies, either get in the room and do the deal mm. or get out of the company. Because you're only on this planet for, what, 70, 80 years. And when that guy passes away, he will be known as a you know food bank fill. A really, you know, that's that's how you'll be remembered. And I just struggle to think... Anybody would want to be remembered like that, but that that will be how you're remembered by most people. It's quite a nasty. I'm not sure they want to be remembered. I think they want to keep in the background and accumulate their wealth and do all the the dodgy dealings that go on. No, no, but they, you know, he's in the he's in the public eye. But I, I, I just find it strange. I mean, the thing is, as well, just quickly finish on this point. You know, he's also a trustee for like a, a charity about helping women in work or poverty. I can't remember. And you think, mate. Start with your own business. You've got women exactly. in, at BT feeding their kids off food bank food. I just don't ha- understand how their brain works. But like you said, they're very different circles to us. Keir Starmer, uh, I told you a moment ago about the, the polling with regards to Royal Mail strikes and they're justified. Very similar polling. Actually, the same set of polls from Salvation, I think, had 63% favour the Royal Mail being put back into public ownership, which is fantastic. So the public sees sense. Where's Keir Starmer? I don't think Keir has got the connection with working class people uh, in a way where he's confident to put forward the sort of policies that uh, are going to win the election. I think he thinks that, you know, as long as the Tories are doing bad, if you play it safe, uh, you know, you might get there. I'm not buying that. I don't think most people will buy it. I mean, they may, well, I want a Labour government. You know, I'm still a Labour Party member. I'm finding it really difficult to sort of rationalise why I'm still a Labour Party member. But, you know, if you lead a political party, you've got to set out your vision. And they're running out of time to set out that vision. But I think those who have probably got a grip on Keir uh, and and the leadership of the Labour Party, their strategy seems to me to be, say the least you can, uh, you know, don't make any big promises, um, get into power. And then it's that old Mandelson thing, isn't it, about there's no point in having, you know, principles if you haven't got power. Well, I think they're in danger of the reverse of that, is that you get power, but you ain't got any principles. And that's what we saw towards the end of, uh, you know, the last Labour government uh, over a number of years, new Labour, I mean by that. Uh, So, you know, I mean, it's up to Keir, isn't it, what he does. They should be intervening in these disputes. Whether or not they go on picket lines, at the end of the day, there's enough Labour politicians now who are, who are out visiting picket lines. I think the issue is, is what are they saying mm. about these disputes? What's Keir Starmer going to say 
about what we've uncovered, uh, that the, the company Royal Mount is actually involved in secret talks uh, for a takeover. What's, he, what's his position on that? And he should be coming out next Wednesday. This Is it this Wednesday they're back in Parliament? Sorry, next week uh, at PM question time and putting that question straight to the Tory party. There's lots of polling out about public ownership, rail, mail, you know, the classical utilities, water increasing because of the, you know, all this crap that's being pumped into rivers in the sea. And there are majorities among Tory voters for this stuff. Now, I get the criticism that if you offer the, too much the electorate, they don't believe you. And, it, you know, they lo- it's a great wish list, but they don't think it's going to be executed, so they don't take you seriously. I think that's a legitimate criticism. But like you say, even in just the rhetoric, Keir Starmer could be talking about corporate fat cats out of control, grinding down blue-collar Britain. This is a very strong message. This is exactly the sort of stuff which appeals to wavering Labour Tory voters in the seats that he has to win, and yet he's not saying it. So I do wonder, where is it coming from? Because, of course, you know, it's easy to say, electoral calculation. And Labour are polling well, entirely, let's be real, entirely because the Tories are doing very poorly. And my worry is, and maybe we disagree on this, my worry is Labour can win the next election. You know, people are saying they can't win the next election. I think with inflation hitting 20%, that's what Goldman Sachs now said, Citibank say 18%, interest rates going up. I think when that happens, who knows anymore, frankly? Liz Truss could turn things on. I think predictions are very, you know, sort of a, a fool's errand in that context. But my worry is Labour form the next government. They're faced with a set of economic conditions way worse than the 1970s. They have no plan to do anything. And he gets absolutely hammered from all directions. And that's not in the national interest. And it's certainly not in Labour's interest to have a government that's torn apart from day one. So wh- where's your thinking on that? Let's be clear, Labour can win the next general election. I would never have said that six months ago. <laughs> but I think anybody now has to realise that that is a possibility. So, you know, you want Labour to do the right things. And, you know, what we are doing, I think, will push them in the right direction. Uh, something like, you know, our Enough is Enough campaign. Uh, I think one of the objectives uh, there is to make Labour sit up and realise that if they don't start saying the right things and defending working class people, then, you know, we're going to do it for them. And we're going to step into that arena and build a social movement, not a new political party, but something that will push them in the right direction. And I think there's room for that debate. Uh, so, look, I had a chat with Keir Starmer uh, the other week and, you know, I hope that the message has been delivered that they will start now talking a bit more about defending working class people. They could do some really strong messages now, couldn't they, about the, the disputes. Mm. You know, I don't think it's all about whether people turn up on picket lines. At the end of the day, you know, I mean, I, I kind of understand the, the point about whether he himself wants to turn up on a picket line. That wouldn't be my main uh, point that I would put to Keir. It would be, what are you going to say about the future of Royal Mount? Mm. What are you going to say about what's happening in the ballroom of BT that's abusing the workers who have made the profits? What are you going to say about the fact that BT are also ripping off customers um, because they're going to put prices up by next January? Uh, I think it's 22% in twelve in a 12-month period. That's what's spiralling inflation. Uh, what are you going to say about these major shareholders who are going to take all of that money that's been given to them and they're going to take it outside the UK uh, to other countries to boost their economies and to to rebuild the infrastructures of those countries as opposed to here in the UK? That's where he should be at the moment. And, you know, he, he should be doing an interview purely on that issue. He should be doing an interview purely on 
the fact that like if Liz Truss gets elected, she's already uh, promising an all-out assault on trade unions. He should be coming out and saying something about that. Uh, and that's what I want to see from Labour. Let's see what happens. You said you spoke to him. I mean, I, I wonder, do you trust him? Because I'm sure he could give you assurances, but the point is he's made so many pledges and promises and assurances and he's not stuck to many of them. And look, they may come into power and, and do really good things. I mean, again, I don't know. It's, it seems pointless to me to speculate about it, but his record of actually keeping to his word is quite obviously bad. I can't disagree with that because uh, when Keir stood for the leader of the Labour Party, as we did with all of the candidates, we wrote to him as a union. And, um, you know, we asked them a series of questions and we asked them, you know, what was their position on public ownership of Royal Mail, various other things. And we got our own set of pledges um, that were similar to what he pledged uh, to, to, wider, to the wider Labour Party membership. But I think they even went a little bit farther. And if I look at those pledges that he gave uh, to us, along with the other candidates, they all said that. Um, yeah, I'd have to say he isn't living up to those pledges. So do you trust, well, people earn trust, um, not by their, their words, but by their actions. So we're watching and, you know, we, we're not in this position where we're here to defend the Labour Party. That's up to Keir Starmer. What we're going to do is something about these issues. You know, we, we believe that you don't wait for political change. Uh, you don't wait for the government to be kicked out you actually do something about it yourselves. And that's what the CWU has been doing in response to really what's been happening since, uh, you know, they lost the election in 2019. We developed a strategy which we call building collectivism. Three strands to that strategy. One is to bring trade unions together like never before uh, and fight for a new deal for working people, fight for solutions to the energy crisis at the moment, the cost of living crisis. Uh, secondly, that we want to work with community organisations. So we do a lot more work now. We're encouraging our branches um, to line up with community organisations, food bank organisations, renters associations, which I think are acting like trade unions with collectivism at the heart of everything they do. There's a natural fit there uh, for us to do that. And the third area that we're really interested in is working with politicians who actually want to bring change about now. And we're doing that through working with Metro Mayors. We're connecting our industrial policies that uh, help our members directly with some of the wider strategies to develop community wealth building solutions across the UK. You mentioned enough is enough. For people mm. not familiar with this, you know, it's a, a hybrid social movement campaign network. They're going to do protests soon. It's it's got yourselves involved. It's got you know, Mick Lynch is there. You've got a few Labour politicians. You've got Tribune magazine. Mick Lynch at a, a rally recently in London, I believe, said the working class is back. Do you think that's, do you think that's true? Do you think the working class is back? Yeah. Uh, I think people have realised now that, you know, all these phrases like taking back control, levelling up, uh, what they've realised more than anything is that no matter what the crisis, 2008 financial crisis, the uh, cost of living crisis, the pandemic, the climate emergency, there's one thing that's certain if we don't stand up uh, for, for working class people now, and that is that they're going to pay the price for it. And I think people are now, there's a different mood out there. 
There's no doubt about that. I think trade unions uh, have recognised that that's different, uh, perhaps more than some of the political parties. And our job is to build confidence amongst working class people. I think Mick is brilliant at the way that he manages to do that. I call him like a working class economist as well as a great trade union leader. People like Eddie Dempsey, you know, he's got a working class philosophy. And I think that can bridge every divide in society. So I'm really hopeful that the work that we're doing, what I want more than anything is people to come back together and realise who the real enemy is. And that is at the moment, unfortunately, um, you know, this Tory government, obviously, but also many of these uh, bouldering bullshitters uh, that are actually, you know, ripping up the terms and conditions of workers everywhere, playing to the lowest common denominator. We can't have that and we're not going to have it. To finish, two questions relating to the media. The first is, I asked this uh, question of Lem McCluskey, I got an interesting answer. What newspaper do you read or newspapers? I read a lot of different papers. I read interviews, I read subjects, you know, I get our comms team to sort of get me as many of the things that are being said. Uh, I don't read one particular paper. I used to, I suppose, buy The Observer, uh, The Guardian, uh, them days are long gone, because um, I'm not that impressed with the way that they're representing some of these issues at the moment. Um, so I try to focus on articles more. Uh, that are relevant to where our members are, to the issues that we care about. Secondly, what media outlet has treated you as a general secretary of a trade union the most fairly and did it surprise you? I, I don't think you ever get treated fairly by the mainstream media. I think that just goes with a, with a you know, job. So, for example, if there's a strike, I mean, the media are only interested in talking to trade union leaders when there's a strike. And we've got to change that. We've got to get into, uh, you know, talking about solutions to some of the challenges that society faces and putting our own ideas forward. And I think that you guys, Navara, uh, Double Down News, you know, Politics Joe, these platforms are hugely important to what we're trying to achieve, uh, which ultimately is a fairer, more equitable society. And I, you know, I'll go back to where we started. I think it's time for trade unions to see what we do in its widest possible context and to act uh, as a group like we do in workplaces. You know, I mean, you go into a workplace, you've got all of the so-called divides in society that are manufactured by people. Well, they all come together when we say, come on, we're taking on the employer. We're, we're fighting hard for your terms and conditions. We should be doing that on all of the big social issues. We should be talking to our members more about that. And we, we, we need to have media platforms that allow us the opportunity to do that. If you can do it through the mainstream media, um, you know, that'd be great as well. Uh, one of the things we want to do on Enough is Enough is set up some in-conversation programs like we're doing now, where you can give a platform to alternative voices uh, through the power of the strikes at the moment and start talking about these wider issues. And I think people will flock to that if we can pull that off, and that's one of our plans, as well as the rallies, as well as the demonstrations, as well as the plans for forms of collective action, by the way, which all workers can participate in, not just uh, those who are in trade unions. Dave, enlightening conversation. Best of luck. Yeah, cheers, Got Aaron. A lot, of, a lot of strikes in the next few uh, weeks and months. Yeah, we certainly have. Hopefully you stick it to them. Let's hope we can also reach some settlements and let's hope we can deliver a new deal for working people and a fairer society. 
It's all on our agenda and we ain't going away. Hi, I'm Rivka Brown, Commissioning Editor and Reporter for Navarra Media. Thanks to our listeners, readers and viewers, we're so happy to announce that Navarra Media now has the backing of over 10,000 monthly supporters. We couldn't produce a single second of our podcast without this regular support. It's amazing to know that so many of you are as determined as we are to defy the mainstream media and take independent journalism to the next level. We can't wait to show you all we've got planned. Thank you.